listeners, this is Talking Frontiers. I'm your host, Riju Ray, Associate Professor of History at Jindal School of Journalism and Communication. In this podcast, we explore histories, ethnographies, and cultural articulations of spaces understood as frontiers, borderlands, fringes, and margins. In this series of episodes, we will have conversations, exchange ideas and stories by showcasing the rich scholarship and literature on the erstwhile northeastern frontier of British India. Geographically, this frontier included not only the seven states that make up northeast of India today, but also parts of Bangladesh and Myanmar. Welcome to the fifth episode of Talking Frontiers. Today's episode is super special. We were scheduled to record this particular episode months ago and for reasons that life throws up at us occasionally, we had to postpone a few times. So I'm truly thrilled to be finally in conversation with our guest today, who is the much-loved and brilliant author Janice Pariyat. We will be talking about her latest book, Everything the Light Touches, published at the end of last year. It has been in several bestseller lists globally and touched many, many people's hearts. Janice offers so much love, insight and curiosity with her words and stories. I fell in love with her first book, Boats on Land, when I was writing my PhD far away from home. Not only did her stories make me feel closer to home, I was just amazed by how seamlessly Janice weaved history and orality into her fiction writing. We will be talking about this aspect of her work, of course, but what is super special about this episode is that we are bringing the listeners into a space that Janice and I share as close friends. We are connected by our love for our homeland, the hills and mountains where we first came to be. Welcome, Janice. So, how have you been? How was your day? Thankfully, nice and slow um, and not too busy. Did a bit of gardening and did a bit of bit of you Lovely. know lounging around. So yeah, it feels like one of those nice, lovely, slow Shillong Sundays. You know what I mean? <laughs> I wanted to start uh, with a question about truth. Goethe's idea about the truth of uh, how of the organism. He wrote in a letter to a friend of his. Describing what the book, The Metamorphosis of Plants, is about, he said it is about the truth about the how of the organism, which was a complicated thing. So, I mean, I just wanted to like from pick up from there and ask about what it means to, you know, um, what truth really means as for an author of literary fiction and what does the quest for truth or journey towards truth really mean? You know, truth is one of those, um, those one of those words. It's it's so heavily laden, and it's so, um, you know, surrounded by you know a word cloud of associations and textures and um, and fears and griefs and and. Also, if I if you want me to tell you about why this question came up, I was thinking about you know, historical fiction and how that, um, the the context of history is very much the truth of history. But then truth is also many different narratives and assumes many different forms. Yes. Uh, it's mutable, it's versatile, it's all of those things. Absolutely. And that brought me back again to the idea of the leaf and it's yeah. being yeah. many things and... Yeah. 
you know, what you're saying actually gets to the very heart of why the book is, um, you know, it is about science at, mm. at one level. Um, it, it uses the metaphor of science and botany and, you know, botanical studies to, um, uh, you know, to explore um, a certain kind of, a certain theme at the heart of the book, of course. But it is a book that is, that's, that's reflecting or at least hopes to reflect on epistemology. How do we know what we know? How do we come to know what we know? And that really also has been at the heart of philosophical mm -hmm. inquiry for, you know, centuries. Um, so when we, when we speak about, you know, truth, and you're right, it is ever-changing, it's shape-shifting, it's mutable, it's slippery, it's it's tricky, you know, whose truth, which truth, the truth at which time and at which place and the truth for whom, um, you know, these are, um, you know, these are all the things that make uh, truth itself such a difficult, um, it, it, such a difficult concept, such a difficult word to, to grapple with as not just a, a writer or an artist, but as a a person, an academic, you know, a human. Um, but, um, you know, the, the reason why Everything the Light Touches uses science um, as a way into exploring these tussles between different kinds of truths, between, between different kinds of ways of seeing is because Western scientific practice has tended or more than tended to assume a particular kind of truth about the world um, and has imposed that assumption um, upon the world as well, right? And of course, um, we know that that kind of particular scientific Western truth comes from you know, uh, things like the Enlightenment, and, you know, it's a long, long process, a long, long historical scientific process um, that that leads to the kind of scientific practice that we, that the book is trying to resist, um, that I'm trying to question. Um, but, you know, the scientific truth um, is or at least the Western scientific truth, a way of doing science, a way of practicing science, a way of getting to know the world um, is what is held as unequivocably authoritative and unequivocably right and correct and truthful. Um, and that is a terribly dangerous thing as we can see because um, not only is it dangerous, it's also extremely violent because it assumes that anything that falls outside of that truth uh, is untrue, is suspicion, is superstition, is magic, is um, rustic, is, um, you know, um, inauthentic, is um, untrue. I think in everything the light touches, truth really is explored as a way of seeing. Um, a way of seeing the world and um, at the heart of the book then this 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 hustle this tug occurs between these various ways of seeing between these various um, truths except that of course um, you know the the way of seeing the vision that a character like Goethe has um, mm. and 
that's why he says, you know, the how of the plant, um, or the 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 indigenous communities that that shy um, immerses, you know, um, uh, herself and her life into, um, you know, their way of seeing their their truth is one that that actually doesn't um, anchor itself to any kind of, of fixity, right? And so therein also um, emerges, at least I hope, um, um, also emerges this, this tussle between, um, you know, the ever-changing, the, 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 the fluid, the shape-shifting um, nature of the world and this, um, you know, immutable, um, authoritative, Western scientific truth um, that, um, you know, that has been, that has been imposed on us so, so very um, violently. I'm, I'm going to come back to the question of the violence, um, you know, hegemonic ideas of truth or science has imposed and has brought upon our world, especially looking around um, in today's world with wildfires and floods and everything everywhere. I mean, there's so much to think through in terms of what has been undermined in terms of ecological practices and so on. But before I come to the question of violence, um, I wanted to ask you about the, the juxtaposition of interconnectedness and mutability of the characters of the book, Everything the Light Touches, so such as Evie and Gertha, Gertha and Linnaeus, and Shai. So Shai at the beginning and Shai towards yeah. the end of the book. So do you mean structurally or do you mean, um, so in terms of how the book is structured or do you mean sort of generally the ideas of in, the interconnected ideas that, that sort of bring all of them together, although both of them are related, of course. Yeah, a little bit of um, both actually. Okay. So how, yeah, how okay. did you bring? How did you sort of imagine yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it it all began, I suppose, as a little seed of an idea. Um, many years ago, almost a decade ago, I was in a garden in um, uh, just outside London somewhere. I think Salisbury or something. I was a student. And um, there was this little exhibition going on about Victorian women botanists. Um, and um, I was fascinated by their very unruly and adventurous lives because um, they were doing all, all the things that they weren't meant to do and they were traveling to places that they weren't meant to go to. And in my head suddenly popped this figure of a woman botanist possibly from the same time, the Victorian or the Edwardian age. And I just imagined her traveling to India, searching for something, possibly a plant, but I wasn't quite sure what exactly. And the book begins with this spirit of inquiry, right? It is a book about curiosity and questioning. And I think it's in some way fitting that it also begins with this question, what is she looking for, right? What is she seeking? Um, and in some ways, I wrote the book to find out what it was that Evie was looking for, um, because it begins with that question and it leads me to an answer. Um, and that answer 
um, you know, brings into the fold a character like Goethe. So Evie is greatly influenced by Goethe's botanical writings. If you bring in Goethe into the picture, you can't help but um, come across somebody like Linnaeus, to whom Goethe was, well, I wouldn't say opposed, but he greatly resisted or he ended up greatly resisting Linnaeus's way of seeing the world. Although it didn't start out that way, he was in great and deep and profound admiration of uh, Linnaeus to begin with and tried very hard to um, practice um, botanical studies in the way that Linnaeus, you know, uh, prescribes. Um, and but a failed because it just wasn't the way, as he says, it wasn't the way, it wasn't in my nature to do so. Um, and so one character leads to another, um, one question led to another. Um, and somehow I knew, um, call it instinct, call it sort of the gut. Um, I knew that the narrative that, that ought to bind all of these together in some way uh, needed to be a contemporary present day um, narrative, a story of the here and now, of us here and now. And that's how Shai um, came into the picture. Um, and because this is a story about interconnectedness and about how um, even though you may not realize it, even though you may not think of it in this way, um, you know, stories that begin elsewhere in different times, in different places, um, can have an impact and their consequences can be felt many, many hundred years later in places far away, affecting people who, who may not have ever had anything to do with, um, you know, the, the other historical event in the first place. Um, so it is this large interconnected canvas. It, it, it was a novel that I imagined in some ways in terms of geological time which is how Shai imagines the world as well that she lives in. She's constantly uh, looking for a sense of perspective while um, calling upon um, deep time, deep historical time, geological time. You know, why does it matter? Um, how, why do our paths cross? Um, you know, galaxies only encounter each other once every you know, 400 million years. So what does it mean for people to meet? Um, so because it works on this intricate, large, large canvas, um, I had some trouble <laughs> trying to place it within the form of a book. A book is finite, it, it, it begins and ends somewhere and uh, it has a particular form and it sits your, in your hand in a particular way. Um, but I knew that I wanted in some way, um, as much as I could, as far as possible to echo that sense of largeness, that sense of, of, of connection and resonance through the ages, echoing, echoing, echoing through the ages. Um, and I had considered placing these narratives one after another in these rather four blocky parts. And that didn't seem to work because it seemed much too watertight. 
and these lives are not watertight, histories are not watertight. Then I considered placing their narratives in some kind of alternating chapter form, but that got much too messy um, and much too confusing. Um, and so I borrowed uh, a structure which is often called a nested structure, a structure which opens out in some ways like a little Russian doll uh, or like a flower or um, like the rings in a tree. Um, and it, it, you know, it seemed to work most appropriately in this way where each narrative unfolds into the other and retreats and then unfolds again and retreats and then unfolds again. And, you know, you experience the book hopefully in this kind of fluid way, almost like, you know, sitting on the shore of the sea, of, of an ocean and, and the waves sort of lap up at you and retreat and lap up at you again. And, and you know, I hope, <laughs> I hope that it reads that way. That was the intention to, to find resonance, to find um, connection, not just within the stories them themselves, but in the shape that these stories took, in the form that you hold in your hand. Oh, yes, they do. They absolutely <laughs> wonderfully do that, I think, for the readers. What I loved about reading the book is the way that time became non-linear and the journeys of the different characters were so intertwined, although they were, you know, worlds apart. It also made me think so much about identity and what we think in rigid terms about, you know, uh, who we are, where we are, where we speak from, and all of those things. And I think there is so much um, depth and expansiveness in thinking about people separated by time, space, genders, you name it. And, um, you know, still there is something that is at the core of these people that connects them so deeply. Um, yeah. So I, I actually did have my next question was about time and the way, you know, you frame time, but I think you've, um, you have told us a little bit about time, but here we see how colonialism has left its ruins in these places. So yeah. time also being, can be identified in the way it has remained rather than in the way that it has, it's, now over and now we're in a different time and space and so on. Um, so how, like, I, I want to ask you about history then, you know, because this is very much um, a historical novel. How did history, yeah. our history in particular from the colonized post-colonial point of view um, inform your work? Yeah. Um, that's such a good question, Riju. To be very honest, I never imagined this as a historical fiction novel because for me, none of this happens in the past. It is very much present. It is very much here. And if you notice, each of the narratives, no matter which time they're set in, which time they're set in, they're all written in the present tense. And that was a very deliberate decision to say, that the past is right here, right now. It hasn't gone anywhere. Um, and to say that, you know, we we cannot um, 
begin to understand the various crises in, in, in our world today without acknowledging that. You know, that the ecological crisis, the crisis of, of identity and, and, and you know, who we are and nationhood and nationalism, we can't say that these are pressing, urgent, contemporary concerns because they did not begin here and now or even a decade ago or 50 decades ago, right? Um, they began um, in, in, in deep, deep time. But if you, um, if you spread, spread that out, if you stretch that, stretch that out on a string, it all collapses. Right, it collapses to here and now, and you know, with this book, I'm trying to say that there is a connection between Linnaeus going on a tour of Lapland in the north of Sweden in 1732, and the fact that Kongsbility has to fight to keep her land, uh, you know, against uh, uranium miners in 2006. That there is always that connection. That what happened then. The consequences are so far reaching that it is as though it is it is happening now. Mm -hmm. and without us acknowledging that, I think it becomes really difficult uh, to try and think of ways of healing, of ways of trying to get ourselves, you know, out of these situations, of trying to find policy solutions, because we're so focused on the very narrow and the very splintered and you know and 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 the very present that we forget that there is such a larger and such a deeper context um and perhaps in acknowledging that uh we may realize that what's needed is not just these um you know quick short term solutions but really these paradigm shifts right within ourselves to to, to understand that the ecological crisis, um, you know, we find ourselves in, in this kind of uh, ecological crisis now, possibly because, um, you know, a way of seeing um, has led to this. And without us changing that way of seeing, no amount of, you know, policies and doomsday articles and conferences and papers and all of that is, is really, um, I think, going to help, right? It's far, far deeper. I mean, um, I was just reading um, about how, um, you know, intergenerational trauma um, is actually perhaps... Uh, you know, something that we ought to be thinking about even on a on the scale of our species. That our wow. species, the humans themselves carry into it carry a trauma that we then inflict um, upon our earth because we don't quite know what to do with that grief and with that trauma. So it's it's huge. It's this canvas that that is so difficult for us to work with or to think about because it is so large and perhaps we're not quite used to thinking about, you know, it, about issues um, in this <laughs> in this way. Um, so it's really a push towards that. And I think um, even 
you know, even with our post-colonial selves, it's, 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 you know, something that I, I take from, from your conversation about your book um, in Shillong, that we've had, you know, long histories, <laughs> even before uh, colonization. And so, you know, what becomes to the truth of ourselves? Who are we when we begin to think of ourselves in these much, much longer, you know, um, timescapes? Who are we? Um, of coming across those little quips about how you know if the universe has existed for 40 minutes we've only been here for like 60 seconds so you know there you go I'm not going to repeat any of that but you get it right we are a very small part of history the trilobites you know ruled earth for 360 something million years and then died they're all extinct why on earth do we think we're so special. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I wonder that sometimes. <laughs> but to go back, yeah, but to go back to your question about time, I think, you know, this is what happens when you're working with, with big history, with, with you know, timescapes that, that are so long and so, so vast that it becomes almost impossible or it becomes very difficult to think of something as only existing in the here and now. Absolutely. Yeah, without trying to understand sort of the much, much larger, deeper context around it. Because even these characters, Ridu, Shai, Evie, Goethe, Linnaeus, in some ways, you know, the biography of all of their lives stretches for a hundred years before and a hundred years after at least. How do we write the bi biography of someone with any depth without taking into consideration a much, much longer timescape, right? And this is something you were saying before, is that there is a dominant form of knowledge that presents to us certain things as ine inevitable. So for example, the nation is an inevitable construct, whereas a lot of stories cannot be said or told or imagined as national stories, such as these characters and their lives. They cannot be contained in a, any kind of um, national pigeonhole at all. And I was surprised at how much I related to Goethe. <laughs> I did oh. not anticipate that at all. I was like, okay, Shai is my girl. <laughs> I'm gonna, I relate to her the most. And in the end, it was this girl. <laughs> Someone who, you know, travels and finds himself in different moments, find try, you know, is is constantly curious, is is um, a hopeless romantic, and is just this really beautiful character. And I think the the things you've highlighted about him are just so wonderful so um they just make you love this person you know you just want to give him a big hug <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you feel that way because for me Goethe in the most unexpected surprising way turned out to be almost a form of a literary ancestor you know someone I I ended up feeling so close to um and I did not expect that because I began, you know, working with Linnaeus and Goethe in the most trepidatious way. I was quite intimidated 
about writing to white male European uh, historical figures who had actually lived and existed and were, you know, towering um, scientific and literary um, yeah. personalities in their own right. And, and it was frightening. But, you know, um, with a lot of help from other uh, books that had also perhaps included, um, you know, um, Goethe or Linnaeus as fictional characters, it sort of helped me, you know, manage this and negotiate this fear. Because honestly, I found myself saying, you know, who are you to write these big white male European characters? Who are you? You're this tiny little brown writer from like Northeast India. These are the narratives you tell yourself because we live in the world in the world that we do. And you learn that you have to undo those narratives and and turn them inside out and reshape them. And you know, you take a look at these characters and you see them hopefully for who they are, you know, flawed and imperfect and human and and also struggling just as, as much as anybody else to to find themselves to bring you know their own sort of personhood to light I I, I I'm so glad to hear that because really Goethe spoke to me in so many ways as well especially um, with the fact that you know he he felt as though he 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 wished to write about everything. He was a poet and a scientist, and he didn't quite see why there should be any reason why he ought not to be all of those things all at once. Yeah, um, and he felt so pigeonholed, being just you know a writer, and he was so much more. And I guess you know it spoke to the part of me that that has always also struggled against categories, right? We're always placed into these convenient little boxes and we do it and other people do it to us. And you only begin to realize that these boxes diminish people. Yeah. You know, they 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 diminish them. You are so much more <laughs> than yeah. that. And I guess Goethe called for that kind of abundance in his way of seeing and in his way of being. And it really spoke to me. You can be a glorious, contradictory bunch of multitudes. <laughs> That's so lovely. You know, in all your books, how do characters come to you? I think it depends on the project, to be honest. And it it, it varies from book to book. Um, I think the, the characters in, in, say, a book like Boats on Land, which was, you know, a collection of, of short stories... Um, these characters had sort of flitted in and out of my life, in and out of my shalongscape. Um, and I'd sort of carried them with me for many, many years before putting them down on the page. Um, so they were a little bit of, you know, people I knew and uh, people I'd encountered, but also um, as fiction, you know, allows you to do, they were also written in particular ways to serve um, the story. With, um, I think, uh, the other books, uh, Seahorse and Nine Chambered Heart, they were stories that were very, very close to, to my heart and to my life experiences. So they were very much excavated from this particular emotional landscape. 
um, especially at the time, um, given, you know, all the experiences I was having, what I was going through uh, with love, with life and all of that. But I think with everything the light touches, I suppose it was really the first time where I was working with historical, real historical figures. And oddly enough, I found that by the end of it, it was, um, I mean, I say easier, it wasn't easy, but it was easier to work or to write Linnaeus and Goethe rather than the fictional characters in the book who were Evie and Shai, especially Shai. Um, with Evie, I still had a lot of sort of secondary, you know, material, letters, journals, a lot of research sort of material that that helped me write her in a particular way. But with Shai, her being so close to me in some ways, her journeys echoing mine in, in so many um, in so many ways made it that much more difficult to write because you want your character to to inhabit a space where her own inner motivations make sense for the story. They cannot be yours in some ways, right? They, they need to organically develop for the character in that space, in that particular context and feel real and authentic to her. Um, so that was most, most difficult. Shai took the longest to emerge on the page. Um, like you stand out as an author uh, because of the thoughtful and and really profound ways in which that you honor and include orality into your writing. Can you tell us something about this relationship of how oral traditions, oral histories have informed your work and what are some of the difficulties that you may have encountered in using oral sources? Mm. <laughs> I love that the last bit of that question sounded like such an academic question. <laughs> <laughs> I, tr I try not to slip into that, but it's, uh, it's you I know, that's so. <laughs> I love it though. It's the Riju I, I know and love. <laughs> um, I think that the oral space, orality has always, always featured in my life. I mean, coming from where we come from, you know, growing up in the place that, that we grew up in, um, being surrounded by the kind of people that, that we were surrounded by, and being part of the community that, you know, we were part of, um, which is, you know, the, the Parsis generally, uh, um, and then being... Uh, you know, community that was largely, largely oral um, until, of course, um, you know, the lawmakers and the missionaries appeared on the scene um, in the 1800s or even earlier, going by your book, uh, Riju. <laughs> um, I feel as though it's always been there. It's always been sort of simmering, um, you know, beneath my writing practice all of these years in ways that I hadn't even been able to identify, to be honest, at the beginning. So for example, if I look back at Boats on Land now, it strikes me how much, um, you know, this um, acknowledging and even this honoring of orality features in these stories. There are storytellers, in fact, in almost each of the short stories in Boats on Land. 
the, the you know the the opening story begins with um, how do I explain the word kaktin? Um, and it 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 speaks about orality in a way that I thought was felt appropriate for that story <laughs> at the time. But when I look at it now, it's almost like a little small manifesto for my writing life after, you know. Um, That's so um, beautiful. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So it's always been there, but it hasn't quite emerged to the surface as much as it has now um, until quite recently um, I was on my way to um, Aizol for a little uh, literary event and I was in the car with this wonderful sort of uh, junior lecturer from you know the university he was in the English department and he was telling me we were chatting he was telling me about all these wonderful uh, meso writers um, you know who were writing short stories, novels. Um, and I was very excited. And I said, you know, are these available in translation? And he said, yes. And, and I was like, well, you know, where's, uh, you know, where's the bookshop in Aizol? And he said, actually, there's no bookshop in Aizol. And his face fell and he sounded so apologetic. And I know that I had the same reaction that you probably did just now, right? your heart sort of, you know, squelches a bit and you're thinking, oh, what is a town without a bookshop? How bereft, you know, um, are these people? And, and then I asked him, well, what, what really is the history of, of the Mizo language? And he said, well, it's largely oral and, um, you know, until the missionaries came and it just, you know, made me pause and re-examine the question that I had asked. And it made me realize that I was sitting in that car asking all the wrong questions. Um, I ought to have asked, where are your storytellers? Where can I find the best storytellers in town, right? And perhaps then he wouldn't have felt the need to apologize or to feel embarrassed most right um and you know Mizoram has 97% of literacy it's not as though they can't read but mm. perhaps they choose not to because we come from just as in Shillong you know people complain that oh we don't have any bookshops in Shillong don't read here so what you know perhaps they access the world through other ways you know we um, absorb stories in other ways. We love sitting around a chula and yathukhana and telling stories. And I think from then on, it just felt to me like such a grievous injustice that I attended all of these literary festivals all over the country, which dismiss and mostly ignore all our incredibly rich literary traditions all around um, the country. We are so lucky to belong to a, you know, the Southeast Asian belt, which is extremely rich in oral storytelling traditions to begin with. And here we are sitting at these posh literary festivals with absolutely no acknowledgement that literatures can take so many forms, that it needn't always be textual, that it needn't always come in the form, in the recognizable form of a book. Right, And I think that if we only recognize literature as 
something that's written, we leave ourselves with a map that is filled with darkness, right? A literary map that is filled with darkness, where some places, it seems, have no stories, right? And that felt to me so, so unfair. And um, I think it spilled over not just into my writing life, but into my teaching life. Um, I teach um, a little bit of creative writing at Ashoka University, and I, I re-examined and re-interrogated all my, you know, syllabi and my course structure and thought, why are we only reading in these classrooms? Why are we not listening? You know, if, if the Cambridge, you know, handbook of creative writing says that there is a double helix, um, to writing where you are reading and writing and while you read you become a better writer I would say that actually it's 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 much larger than that right that there's reading there's writing and there's listening yeah. so, so we begin our classes um, at Ashoka with storytelling sessions and students tell share offer stories to each other and it changes the texture of the classroom entirely because oh, you have heard yeah. a voice you have heard a story we examine how we might become better writers mm -hmm. by becoming better listeners mm -hmm. how do you employ silence how do you employ pause how do you employ hesitation right how do you employ silence as suspense i can sit here and say read you you know <laughs> and you'll be on the edge of your seat right yeah, so yeah. I found myself in almost this inexplicable surprising way trying to bridge these or trying to build these bridges between orality and text trying mm -hmm. to build connections, saying that we are born listeners. We are not born with pens and papers in our hands. We learn to listen to begin with. You know? And why should that not be brought into a classroom? Why does all our learning have to be um, from a very particular, recognizable, literary, scripted mm -hmm. source? Mm -hmm. um, and I guess this is where you know, your question on truth also becomes exploded. That yes. truth becomes this multifaceted, multi-layered, ever-expansive thing when you think about the world and how you may learn about it in so many ways. Mm -hmm. right? There's not just one way. There's not just one truth. Um, and so I guess that also, as I said, spills into my writing, but in a much more intentional, deliberate way with everything the light touches. Um, I don't think that it's an issue that is, or it's it's a theme even, I don't want to call it an issue, but um, I don't think that it's it's a theme that that textures the the book in the way that it did for Boats on Land in a much more direct way. With everything the light touches, it becomes, this tussle between orality and script becomes part of a much larger discussion on the tussle between fixity and unfixity, fixity and fluidity, right? Mm -hmm. That um, um, with the coming of sort of uh, with the coming of colonial lawmakers and missionaries, um, educators, um, script 
you know, they bring with them the idea that script is authoritative, that script is truthful, authentic, um, and uh, carries weight and value. Whereas the oral, the spoken, the sung is light and frivolous and tricky and slippery and inauthentic and valueless and impossible to archive and document and it cannot be fixed of course we learn that script can easily be manipulated as well and script can sometimes be as slippery and intangible and tricky as the spoken but i don't think that was something that the colonialists wished to acknowledge right yeah. um so um so within 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 this novel you know orality, the spoken, um, becomes, um, uh, you know, in relation to, to the script, in, in relation to the scripted, becomes part of this much larger um, discussion. Um, and there's a part in the book with Evie and Pernay talking about this very, um, you know, this very thing where Evie says, but you know, what about law? How do you make laws? Um, you know, because her father back in England is a lawyer. Um, and uh, Pranaya just says, well, you know, we give people our word. And she said, but what if, what if, you know, somebody breaks their word? How do you punish them? You know, how do you take them to a court of law? And Pranaya just says, well, they must just live with themselves. Yeah. Right. And perhaps that is harsher punishment. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so it joins this larger discussion and it becomes, in hopefully it infuses this larger discussion on you know, fixity and fluidity, which I think honestly is, is, is the core um, of this mm. book. Yeah. <laughs> I only managed to articulate what the themes might be in this book, what the core might be this tussle between fluidity and fixity at a much, much later draft. Um, so it really depends, again, you know, from book to book. Sometimes you have that idea and that very clarified, crystallized idea of what you want to do and um, how you want to achieve it. And of course, there will always be surprises along the way. Um, but you start out by in some way knowing what the map ahead looks like. Sometimes you plunge right in and you think, okay, um, this is what I think I'm doing. <laughs> and what emerges a few drafts later is actually, okay, this, right? So I had all of the research done for everything the light touches because, you know, it needed that kind of um, uh, large amounts of, of, of external research in some ways, although the internal and the external are often linked. Why do you write the books that you write? Because of course you are, you know, internally propelled to do so. But I had to spend a lot of time at, at, at libraries and reading rooms and, and all of that. So all of that was done. And I knew, you know, that these were my characters and this is what I wanted them to do and to say and to explore. But the actual theme, emerged much much later so I don't know if there is any kind of checklist or any kind of clear process 
that um, you know a, a writer or anyone really can adhere to because each book, each project throws up its own challenges and its own demands and its and its own requirements. You know, you have to learn to customize your process according to the demands that the book makes as well. Um, I don't think that you can do the same thing for each book. Do these books make a demand for from you to to change, to be, become more, become different? Yes. Oh, absolutely. There were times when, especially when I was working on the Linnaeus section, because I found that very, very difficult. Yeah. Wasn't sure whether it would work, because that was the section I, I began with. I know that we've talked about the non-linearity of time and how time is all one and the past is here, but I thought, no, I have to start with the oldest <laughs> Because in my head, <laughs> the present could only emerge after I had dealt with Linnaeus and Goethe. So there we go, you know. Yeah. It's complicated, Richu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of these coexist. <laughs> all of these things. Um, but I, I really struggled with certain sections and felt completely inadequate on so many days um, and thought, you know, what am I trying to do here? Am I even in any way capable of doing this? Am I asking too much? Or maybe I'm just not good enough to do this, you know? Um, so there were many days like that. And Somehow you find that resolve and that determination and that courage to say, I'm going to try. I don't know, but I will try. And I can't not try because it will really annoy me <laughs> to give up at this point. <laughs> um, because you're you're challenging your capabilities, your your range as a writer yeah. you know what you what you think you can do pretty okay and you're comfortable with then this is this can pass <laughs> but beyond person. exactly Sorry. are you able to as a person deal with the challenges that are are you know being thrown up at you every day when you sit down at, at your computer Mm -hmm. what kind of writer are you is is what kind of person are you really yeah. um and and it was tough it was really challenging um also it didn't help that I'm not a science student or maybe it did help that I wasn't a science student but I was very very worried about not getting you know scientific details right um and so tried to read and read some more and you know sort of really um slogged over um you know the the scientific mm. bits just to make sure that they were because mm. I thought that would be unforgivable to get any of that wrong while trying to say this <laughs> way of seeing needs to be questioned <laughs> that would be terrible um because you cannot make that argument and then have you know details within that argument that are um mm. that are wrong so yes 
um, it was terribly challenging. And there were many days I wanted to give up and hurl this out of the window and say, forget it. Why am I even trying to do this? Why bother? And then there'll be a little voice that says, come on, you can't give up now. Um, you know, just just try. You don't know how it's going to turn out, but something, something tells you that you should go on. And honestly, I don't know if this makes any sense, Riju, but this book felt like, in some way, it wasn't entirely written by me. It felt as though it was propelled by something much larger, by the universe, by the spirit of our ancestors, by something much, much bigger. By some force that that just you know <laughs> that emerged um at the writing desk but it wasn't it wasn't entirely me oh that is such a good answer because i feel like there are going to be listeners who are aspiring writers themselves students people who love your books and you're giving us an insight into a process that is not seamless and 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 always easy and and yet it is so inspiring to hear you talk about this um this difficult process because there is dedication there is love that brings you back to finishing this project and which then we get to enjoy and love <laughs> and learn from and then you know perhaps get inspired by to to write things ourselves and this brings me to my um concluding question who are some of the authors storytellers who have influenced you uh to carry on writing to um who who are the who are the storytellers and authors you love yeah oh where to begin, where to start, oh, so many. And I love that you include, you know, storytellers with so many, um, you know, so many others who have asked me this question have often just, um, have often just, you know, said, who are the writers that you love? And there are many of those, but so many um, of my literary influences um, have never written a book in their lives probably will never write a book in their lives. And some of them don't know how to read or write either. Um, but they are marvelous, marvelous, marvelous storytellers. And um, so many in my family, um, you know, come to mind my uh, my father, my mom, um, and uh, my grandparents, of course, but also, you know, friends and strangers who've just sort of wandered into the room during sort of a funeral wake or a wedding celebration and who've just sat down, you know, around the hearth um, by the fire and just, you know, joined in and just told some incredible, incredible stories. Um, my, 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 my Kong who, who, you know, helped um, my mom, um, with my sister and me, she she looked after my sister and me. She was a wonderful storyteller. Her name is Tian, Stian Karwar, and you might um, notice that she is actually Shai's uh, nanny in the book. And um, I wanted to keep her name in the book because I wanted her to be her and no one else. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, um, Stian, Kong Stian, or Oin, as we called her, very, very lovingly at home, 
was such a huge part of our lives and and would tell us the most raucous um, stories that possibly my mom wouldn't have quite approved of but um, <laughs> you know she she did it anyway and uh, as Shai says in the book it also depended on her mood if she was in a good mood the lovers would have a happy ending if they she wasn't in a good mood they would all die so <laughs> the story just stories just changed every time she told them um and she is in this book in the way that she is because also she passed away before i could go and see her and um she is in this book because i give shy all the time in the world with oil that I didn't have with her. Um, so sometimes, Riju, we write books to bring back the people that we have lost um, and to make them live on. No? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, oh, she's one of the most memorable um, characters in the book. And I, I mean, she's, you know, somewhere. She knows that you've dedicated this to her and she's living on. I, I, I visited her grave after the book was out and I left a copy on it for her and um, she would have been like, where's my kwai? <laughs> but <laughs> I'll take that for her next time. <laughs> and to, you know, expand on your question, the writers that I love, I mean, again, this sounds so cliche, but there's so many, um, but I would like to just maybe bring up a few who I read and who inspired me to write everything the light touches in this way um, and one of them is Robin Kimmerer who wrote uh, Braiding Sweetgrass a collection of essays that serve as our little sort of I don't know guide to life you might like to call it but there's so much wisdom in those pages and so much gentleness and um, so much gratitude so much to learn from her book there's Pranay Lal, who I will never stop talking about because he wrote Indica, uh, A Deep Natural History of the Indian Subcontinent. And really, that was one of the books that transformed the way I see the world. It placed oh. everything into this incredible long perspective. And other books have done that, uh, you know, subsequently. But this was the book that, you know, as it happens, I came across at the right place at the right time. Um, and I think it meant so much to me or it meant, you know, so much to me in the way that it did because it speaks of landscapes that we are very familiar with about mm -hmm. the mountains, the hills in Meghalaya, you know, the plains of, of central India, the Deccan Plateau, um, the landscapes of, of, of the north. Um, and they give us tools with which, the book gives us tools with which to read this landscape and I realized that the world is a story and we know so little with which to read um, all of these stories around us and this book gave me a few small tools you know to look around and say oh, you know this rock came from that volcanic explosion that actually uh, annihilated the dinosaurs um, and this rock is found here in Sora. And you think of you think of this magnificent adventure story that the earth unfolds before you every day. And that's the book that that really inspired me um, to look at the world in new 
I also loved uh, Robert McFarlane's Underland, which offers, as Pranella did, um, this long perspective, but about our subterranean world, the world beneath our feet. And um, I realized, and, and you know, he will very eloquently sort of explain this to you in the book, that everything beneath us is time, rock and soil and stone. It's all time calcified and taken shape and form. Um, and it is much more alive than we ever imagined it to be. Um, and so I guess that made me look at the earth and stone and rock beneath our feet in, in a wholly different way. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing this and for um, sharing so much about the process of writing, uh, everything the light touches and um, talking about the beautiful characters uh, in your book, um, your inspirations, and just also reminding us the importance of looking around us and keeping our, you know, listening ears open and and that there are stories around us you we don't have to go into the depths of a library to to find the most beautiful stories and um i'm sure we'll continue this conversation and i look forward to your next book already but no pressure no pressure, <laughs> no pressure. and yours we do okay <laughs> no pressure there either <laughs> But um, thanks so much. Once again, my students at the journalism school at Jindal will be thrilled because, but also they were, they wanted you to be in the studio so they could meet you, but that we can arrange at some point in the future. So thanks again. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you. You know, your questions were also different. It made me revisit the book in, 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 in a new way. So it was, it was, you know, which is always wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.